Get it, sweetie. Um, uh, we are in this series, Grammar of Faith, and what we've been saying is that there is um, a deep importance to what we believe, and yet so often Christians, even those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, use terms and talk about things that we believe without really understanding them. And even if we understand them, maybe we don't fully understand how they're meant to work into our lives. Like, okay, last week we talked about, okay, God is a trinity. I may or may not fully understand that, but most of us don't really understand, well, what does that have anything to do with the way I live? So that's what we talked about, right? And the week before that, we set out this this sort of overall idea that what we believe is meant to impact what we desire, which is ultimately going to impact how we behave, who, who we are in the world. And so we're going to carry that through each of these topics. Today we come to the topic, hopefully you heard it in what Andrea just read, uh, the topic of God's Word. You've probably heard this, whether you're a Christian or not, but if you've been around Christians, that we are people who take the Bible very seriously. And today, we're going to talk about why that is. Now, this, this one, like many of these topics, is one that I feel it's necessary to say. There is literally no way that I can say everything there is to say about the Bible, about why we see the Bible as authoritative in our lives. Um, but we're going we're gonna to do our best to answer the, the two big questions that I think are important insofar as, as what we're doing in this series is concerned. One is I want to explain why that is. Why do Christians take the Bible so seriously? Why do we see it as, as the authority for, for our lives? And then I want to talk about kind of the so what. Okay, so what? what? What does that actually mean? How does that function in our lives? This is a quote from uh, Dr. Greg Allison, who not only is a wonderful church historian, but uh, just kind of a, a cool fact is he was one of the original elders of our church. When we were first being planted, we had external elders. And, um, and so he was someone who interviewed our first batch of kind of in-house elders, myself included. And so Dr. Allison's always been uh, significant to me. And this is just something he says and, and uh, that, that can frame our discussion today. Everything a person must know to be saved and everything a believer must do to live a life pleasing to God is contained in Scripture. Without scripture, there is no true knowledge of God leading to salvation and no divine wisdom leading to godly living for the people of God. What you hear in that is a couple things. First, you hear what theologians classically call the sufficiency of scripture, that the scriptures are sufficient to lead one to a saving understanding, to a genuine relationship with God. And then the scriptures are also sufficient to lead one into the kind of life that God calls us to live. Now, they're not sufficient on their own. They're sufficient insofar as they are the work of God himself, that, that they are, right, we're not saved by the Bible. We are saved by the triune God, as we talked about last week, through the work of Jesus applied by the Spirit. This is everything that we're kind of building into this. But the scriptures are what actually God uses to point us to those truths. And so the scriptures are sufficient. You also hear some of the authority of scripture, that the scriptures are the measure for us of, of what's true, of, of ultimate truth, capital T. For us, everything is to be measured against the scriptures. And so that's, that's how high our view of scripture is. It begs the question, well, why? Why, why are we so convinced 
that this type of statement is true. And here's the image that I want you to have in your head. It's this one. Now, before you look at that, the big thing that this is getting at is that a follower of Jesus does not primarily trust the scriptures. That is is not the primary um, sort of uh, object, if you will, of our trust. We do trust the scriptures, but we trust the scriptures because we first and foremost trust a person, namely Jesus Christ. So we trust Jesus first and foremost, and then we trust what he trusts, if you will. And so our understanding of Scripture, I don't know if you've ever quite heard it put this way, but is grounded first and foremost in our trust in Jesus. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus, right, stands in the middle of the biblical story, so to speak. He says things like, everything that's gone before my life and ministry and death and resurrection, everything in the Scriptures was pointing to me. And then there's a sense in which he points forward to the existence of a scripture that hasn't actually happened yet. And so the language that I'm going to use this morning is that Jesus endorses and validates the the OT there is the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible if you want to think of it that way. That Jesus endorses and validates the Old Testament. That's sort of looking backwards and what he does moving forward is that he anticipates and authorizes the New Testament. Okay? Some of you blank stares. That's okay. We'll keep working on it. He endorsed and validates. Let's look at the Old Testament one. So Jesus, in his life and ministry, says things like this. Which, by the way, of course, there's a circularity to this argument. Maybe you're feeling that already. Like, isn't this proved by the Bible? But that's a little bit like saying trusting reason by reasoning your way to trusting reason. Like, at some point, ultimate things have a circularity to them. Anyway, it's a philosophical debate. But it just is what it is. Basically, whether it's the Bible or not, one thing that literally every historian agrees upon is that Jesus was a person of, of the scriptures. He was a person of the book. So, so these seem like very valid things that he would have said, whether you trust the scriptures or not. So Jesus says, this is in uh, his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's basically the entire Old Testament. That's a way of talking about the entire Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's, that's one of the letters in their language, not an A, not a Z, not a dot, not a sentence, not you know, a, a punctuation, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Do you hear Jesus' endorsement of the Old Testament? Jesus is saying, yes, the Old Testament is, is authoritatively the word of God, and it's not to be dealt with lightly, basically. John 5, one of the other gospels says, you search the scriptures. This is Jesus talking to the teachers of those Old Testament scriptures. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Again, Jesus' statement, everything that's gone before was pointing to me. It was necessary for you to fully understand me. Now, there's a whole other sermon here about how we can study the scriptures and, in fact, be experts on the Bible without actually personally encountering the one that they're meant to point to. This is a reminder that trust in the Bible is not ultimate. Trust in the Bible is ultimately rooted in Jesus and is meant to drive us back to trust 
in Jesus, to personal encounter with Jesus. Just one more here. This is after Jesus' resurrection. You might remember this scene. He's, he's uh, walking with these, these two people on the road to Emmaus. You remember this whole conversation? And this is, this is what happens toward the end of that. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then check this out. This is like one of the craziest moments in the entire Bible. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, again, a way of summarizing the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the... Uh, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Imagine the master class this was on the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus. So first idea here is that Jesus endorses and validates the Old Testament. Again, we're answering the question, why do we take the Bible so seriously? The answer is because Jesus does. Now, Jesus doesn't just look backwards at the Old Testament and say, yeah, 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 those really are the scriptures. He also now anticipates and authorizes the New Testament by saying things like this. Now, these are conversations that he specifically has with his apostles. Both of these come from what's known as the farewell discourse, last conversation Jesus has with his closest friends and apostles before he's crucified. He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There's a truth in here for all Christians, but this is much more specifically speaking to the apostles and saying there is a very specific role that these 12 that I've chosen, there's a specific role you're going to have that empowered by the Spirit, you're going to speak on my behalf and remember everything that I told you and write that down and record that such that we, 2,000 years later, would have access to that. This is Jesus praying to, to God the Father. He says, For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Again, a very specific task that he gives to the apostles. Then as we go forward in the New Testament, we see those very apostles having a conception of themselves as writing scripture, as writing authoritative word of God in response to, to those very things that Jesus said. So this is Peter, you know, Peter, Peter, who's always kind of messing things up in the Gospels, ends up being one of these people that Jesus gives this authority to by the Spirit. And listen to what he says. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying scripture is not something that's merely writing down some thoughts. It's not merely people writing down some wisdom that they've acquired through life. No, this is something carried along. Remember, we talked about the Holy Spirit last week, that the Holy Spirit has this enlivening, empowering role, and that's what, that's what the, the human divine partnership in writing scripture looks like. And Peter says, that's what I'm doing right now. Listen to what he says later in that same letter. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, another one of, not the original apostle, but that's a whole other story, but one of these people that Jesus had commissioned, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, right? Oh, is it just Paul's wisdom? As he does in all his letters when he speaks, 
on these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Isn't that nice? He says, Paul's letters are really difficult. And if you've been a Christian for a while and you've studied Paul's letters, you're like, thank you for acknowledging that, Peter. But check out what he says. Which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So already, this, this is before Peter dies, right? This is first century. This is, this is years after everything that happens to Jesus. Peter is already saying, yeah, what Paul is writing is scripture. What I'm writing right now is carried along by the Holy Spirit, just like the Old Testament was, and it's Scripture. So why do we trust the Scriptures? Why do we see them as authoritative? Because Jesus did. Because Jesus is is the ultimate focal point of our faith. Some people jokingly say that, that, uh, especially in the West, especially American evangelicals, can have a trinity that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Scriptures, right? And we want to avoid that overcorrection and, and sort of avoid over-personalizing the scriptures because guess who's left out of that? The spirit, right? Again, because the spirit's the wild cousin who, oh, we don't really want to encounter that. The book seems much safer. We'll talk about that when we talk about the Holy Spirit. But there is a reality that the scriptures play this incredibly unique role in what God is doing in the world. So you tracking with that? That's, that's, my, that's my best easiest way to have us wrap our minds around, man, why, why is it that we take the scriptures with such seriousness? Tim, go to that next slide. So, okay, this is what we said last week about the Trinity, and I want some of this, especially those of you who are going to be here every week, I want some of this to build on itself. Last week we said that there is this repeated pattern, both in creation and in God's saving work, that God the Father authors these things. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, that he sends his son to accomplish what he intends, and then God the Spirit applies. God the Spirit actually brings life uh, as a result of the things that Jesus has done. And so God, God creates, God the Father creates through his word, right? Jesus is the word that goes forth and accomplishes what God intends, but then the Spirit is the one that actually brings life in creation. Same thing in salvation. God the Father, for God so loved the world that he sent his son to accomplish the work of salvation. But then when you put your faith in Jesus, it's the spirit that comes into your life and applies the forgiveness of God, applies an awareness that you are now a child of God. Right? Does some of that sound familiar? Okay, good. Okay, this is, how all, this, this is one way of, of thinking about how this works when it comes to scripture. Go to the next slide. So the Father gives us his word, right? It is the word of God. And in that sense, it's the word of God the Father. It's the Father who willingly chooses to be a God who reveals himself. There may be no, there may be no more significant thing about the, the Christian understanding of God than it's a God who willingly chooses to reveal himself who does not unnecessarily hide or make himself vague, but actually makes himself known in the world. That's very significant, that God seeks to be known. And do you know why he seeks to be known? This is where these things begin to build on each other. Because God is a trinity. He's a relationship. And at the center of that relationship is self-giving love. Right? And self-giving love doesn't hide itself. Self-giving love actually moves toward the other. And so we shouldn't be surprised that God the Father, unlike some conceptions of divinity that are afar off, that are unreachable, that require some sort of effort on our part 
to reach enlightenment, to reach understanding of that divinity. No, God the Father is one who reveals himself, who wants to be known and makes himself known. And so as soon as he creates and chooses a people for himself, namely Israel, guess what he does? He reveals himself by giving them a written word that reveals who he is, that talks about his heart and, and, his heart and the things that matter to him. Jesus, right? Jesus is unmistakably, I couldn't think of a better way to say this, but Jesus is the theme of that word. Jesus says that everything that God has revealed about himself up until this point is so that you would understand who I am and what I am doing and what I am accomplishing in the world. Right? Jesus is, you could say, the hero of God's word. Um, many of you love the, the Bible project, right? And the Bible project's one-liner is that we believe that the scriptures are a unified story. Anybody know? What's that? That all points to Jesus, right? Um, I would say points to and through Jesus. I would just add the through Jesus because there is this future pointing thing in Jesus. But, but that's what the Bible is. It's a unified story that, that all points to Jesus. And so Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the theme. God, God the word exists to make Jesus' work known, in other words. And then what does the Spirit do? We're told that the Spirit is the one who, who, who applies that word in our life. The Spirit, um, uh, one of my favorite sort of theological terms when it comes to scriptures is the idea of the Spirit's illumination of the word. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, I wonder if you've had this experience where where Either you're reading scriptures and something just, boom, hits you. You go, oh, I needed that. Or, or you're sitting and you're listening to a sermon and, and something that's being taught, you go, whoa, that just came alive to me. Whoa, that just connected. And it feels like it's beyond mere reason. It's, it's, not, just a, it's not just an intellectual aha. It's something deeper. It feels, like, it feels like God is speaking to you. It feels like there's actually something going on inside. Maybe you've had this in, in the midst of worship. And something that's being sung, a truth that is being sung, sort of goes from your head and, and suddenly it's hitting your heart and you go, whoa, I've never, I've never experienced it this way. That's the Spirit's work, to give life through the Word. And so God gives the Word. He points to the accomplished work of Jesus and then the Spirit applies that and gives it life. And so when we say the Word of God, I think sometimes we primarily think the Word of God the Father. What I want you to do as we build on these is to say the word of God the Father, the word of God the Son, the word of God the Spirit, right? They're all active in bringing these things to bear in our lives. We said that we're going to go back to this every week. Next slide. The orthodoxy, right? Right belief transforms into, into a right posture, right desires in the world, which ultimately translates into right action. So how might we do that here? really love this. Um, this is from our website, from the Jacob Swell website. If you go to About Us and scroll down a little bit, there's a section that says uh, Teaching and Theology. And this is uh, toward the end of our definition of our view of the scriptures. This is our founding pastor, Reed Monahan. Uh, shout out, Reed Monahan. This is his language, so I can, uh, I can say this is awesome without, in a weird way, saying, I wrote this. Um, but check out what he says. He says, the scriptures are the primary way which God speaks to us and the final and supreme authority on all matters of faith and practice. It's really important. In the scriptures, we see and enter the story of God 
We find the narrative soil for truth and receive a mirror by which God convicts us of sin and helps us to change. In terms of, okay, so we trust the word of God. Okay, we see it as the final authority on all matters pertaining to salvation and godliness, right? This, this is the kind of language, like, so what? I just don't know that you're going to do better than that last sentence. In the scriptures, we see and enter the story of God. We find the narrative soil for truth and receive a mirror by which God convicts us of sin and helps us to change. Let's work through each of those in turn. First, it says, in the scriptures, we see and enter the story of God. And what I want to do is take each of these, there's three there, and talk about them a little bit, and then maybe give you an image to, to walk away with. One of the cool things about each of these is that they track really beautifully to Isaiah 55, which I don't know a better passage about, about the beauty of God's word, about the purpose of God's word than Isaiah 55. And so, first one, see and enter the story of God. This is Isaiah 55, verse 3 to 5. I realize that's a little small, but I'll read this. This says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So <laughs> if you want to apply the importance of God's word, right, one thing is we need to be people who are regularly in the word. There's just no way around it as Christians. But hear the invitation here. God is saying that incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I wonder how many of us see something like daily scripture reading, daily scripture Bible study, type of things as like, oh, I just can't think of anything more soul-crushing, more boring, right? And yet God is here saying, if you would hear, if you'd incline your ear regularly to my word, your soul will live, right? The, the innermost part of who you are will come alive in a way that, that you might not have access to otherwise. Then he says, I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the people. He tells a little bit of the story of David. Behold, you shall call a nation that you don't know, and a nation that you do not know uh, shall run to you. This is actually talking about his covenant with Abraham. Covenants are these, these particular moments in the biblical story where God makes commitments to his people and makes promises to them. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. I'm not going to tell you everything that, that David part means, everything about the covenant of Abraham. But what I do want you to understand and what we're at pains to do, especially in discipleship course, is to give you a really, really strong sense that the scriptures are a unified story. Like, we really want that to be part of what you understand is going on in the scripture. That the scriptures are not, right, the, the Bible is actually not one book written by, written by one person. It is written, uh, you could argue, by one person, namely God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But, um, but in terms of human authors, it's actually a collection of books, right? Um, some of this you would get if, if you just keep coming to D course in, in Intellectual 101 and, and the 200s, we go a deep dive again. I can't say all that. What I want you to understand today is it's, is it's one story. This blew my mind. I didn't understand this until I was literally in grad school studying the Bible. And I was like, why did no one tell me this? It makes so much more sense to see it as a story that has a beginning and an end. And, and actually has this narrative thread that goes throughout it. That's what Isaiah 55 is saying. Isaiah 55 is saying, if you would incline your ear, you would come to understand that your life, that your own story, that the narrative of your everyday goings on belongs in the midst of a much bigger story that God has been writing from the very foundation of the world and will bring to completion one day. Your story gets wrapped up in this much bigger story. It's one of the most profound, beautiful things 
about Christian faith is that our stories take on meaning because they get to be connected to this much larger story of what God is doing in the world. The classic way to put that together is to say that uh, creation tells us certain things about God and in that story, but then there's this fall that happens that explains why the world is so messed up, but then there's the Jesus part that begins to put things back together, and then we come into the story after Jesus enters in, but we know where the story ends with the restoration of all things. Right now, there's like a three or four week version that we would give you of that in discipleship course, but that's, that's sort of the, the overall contours of that story. One way, one way to think about that is, uh, is an example that the great uh, Bible scholar N.T. Wright talks about. Do you know who this is? Next slide. That's not N.T. Wright. Who's that? William Shakespeare. Um, that's how it sounds in my mind. Shakespeare. Here's what N.T. Wright says. He says, one of the best ways to understand how the scriptures are meant to function in the life of a follower of Jesus is to see it like a five-act play, like a classic Shakespearean five-act play. But imagine that historians discover a Shakespearean drama that has five acts, like every drama that we're aware of that Shakespeare wrote, and yet act four is missing. What would you do? What would you do? He says, I'll read this because I think it's, it's worth reading. The first four acts existing as they did, or the first three acts existing as they did, would be the undoubted authority for the task at hand. He says the instinct would be, I think, five-act play, you're missing act four. He says, you'd get a bunch of Shakespearean experts and actors in the room, and you would have them study the first three acts, and you would have them study the fifth act. And then what you would call them to do is to say, can you piece together a fourth act? What he says is, the first three acts existing as they did would be the undoubted authority for the task at hand. That is, anyone could properly object to the new improvisations on the grounds that this or that character was now behaving inconsistently, or this or that subplot or theme um, that was laid out earlier had not reached its proper resolutions. The authority of the first four acts would not consist in an implicit command that the actors should repeat the earlier parts of the play over and over again. It would consist in the fact of an un... Uh, as an... Uh, as of an as-yet-unfinished, that's hard to say, of an as-yet-unfinished drama which contained its own movement, its own forward movement, which demanded to be concluded in the proper manner, but which required of the actors a responsible entering into the story as it stood in order first to understand how the threads could appropriately be drawn together and then to put that understanding into effect by speaking and acting with both improvisation, innovation, and consistency. What did all that mean? He says, this is what the Bible is. When you read it, you say, this feels like ancient history. And no, it's not ancient history. It's a drama that's missing an act. You know what act it's missing? This very moment, right? We don't have authoritative scriptures for between Jesus' death and resurrection and the beginning of the church and the end of all things. And yet we're called to act in the midst of this 
as part of that drama. So how do we do that? Do we just make it up as we go? Do we look around at culture and say, well, what's culture doing? And that can define what's good, and that can define what love is. No, no, no. The first four acts, or the first three acts, have to be authoritative. What we do in this fourth act has to accord with what's gone for. We, we can't suddenly turn a Shakespearean drama into a early 2000s sitcom. That would be weird, because there's an act that we already know is going to take place, namely the restoration of all things. Isn't that a really cool way to think of the authority of the scriptures? That it's giving us what we need to live faithfully now without giving us every single line and gesture that we're to do. It invites us to a kind of improvisation. But it's an improvisation under authority. It's an improvisation that doesn't pretend to be the author, but that is acting in accord with the author's desires and intentions. This is what the Christian life feels like. God, just tell me what to do. And then God gives you his word. And you say, what, what is 2,000 years ago or whenever the end is going to take place, what does that have to do with me? And God says, it has everything to do with you. But I'm giving you the dignity to be a meaningful actor and contributor in the drama. So what does that mean for your own story? What little part are you going to play that accords with what's gone before, that looks forward to what's coming, and that might be written into the script one day? That's one way to think of it. Through the scriptures, we see and enter the story of God. The second thing that that definition has is it says that it's the narrative soil for truth. And so we, I love that language of the narrative soil for truth. Because it's not just truth plunked down from heaven apart from the particular story that it's a part of. That the commands of God make sense if you understand that story. But the commands of God apart from that story, if, right, this is what we do all the time. We start with the story that culture is already telling us about what's true in the world and about who we are. And then we go, man, God's commands sound really weird compared to that. Right, we take the story of our moment, the story of our culture, and, and we plunk the commands of God, we plunk the truth of God on top of it, and we go, oh, that sounds really discordant, I don't like that. It says, no, 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 there's, there's, there's a narrative that undergirds. There's a why behind the what of God, what God says, of what God says is true and what God commands us to. And it's when we, we begin to pull those two things apart that the commands of God begin to seem burdensome. The commands of God seem to, to be merely offensive for being offensive's sake, right? Sometimes this is how Christians are, y'all, is because we're not actually living in the story, we're just plunking the commands of God. We're not telling a different story by how we live. We're just plunking commands on people. We're plunking truth on people and dropping it on and saying, why doesn't this make sense to you? It's because they're living in a different story, right? And so the scriptures are the narrative soil for truth. Great philosopher Alistair MacIntyre said, you've, you've heard me say this, you've been around for a while, many times, is he said, I can only answer the question, what must I do if I understand of what story am I a part? I can only answer the question, what must I do if I understand of what story am I a part, right? Because the story that you're living in demands a certain kind of character, demands a certain kind of lines and action and resolution. I love this. This is also from Isaiah 55. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
when we come to the scriptures, <laughs> we should expect to be challenged because we're dealing with a real God who is infinitely wiser and holier and knowledgeable than us. Okay? When you receive instruction, right? if you're trying to learn the cello and somehow you get linked up with Yo-Yo Ma, right? commonly regarded the greatest cellist in the world, right? Somehow you end up with a lesson. And you go in, and he starts giving you tips on hand placement and how you should, you know, whatever you do with a cello. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, I don't know, Mr. Ma, right? Like, I have my own way of doing this. And I think your way is a little strange. And I'm going to do my way because I think it's the right way, right? That's an absurdity. Why? Because there's a superior knowledge, experience, and understanding of the thing that you're trying to accomplish. So you should expect to feel a little dumb, to feel even maybe a little offended when he goes, oh, like, that's how you do it, you know? And, you're, and I'm sitting there like, yes, this is how I do it. And he's like, why? It's not that tall, right? Um, <laughs> right? You should expect there to be a, a, kind, of, um, a kind of challenge but a kind of challenge that's actually moving you toward a greater flourishing in the thing that you're trying to accomplish. What we do is we come to God's word and we so desperately want to take out the parts that offend us and the parts that are strange to us and, and the parts that maybe feel a little untenable to our postmodern neighbors, right? And to our classrooms and to our coworkers. This, this is the image that I would give you for this, right? Is that we, me, want to stand over God's word. This is supposed to be the other direction, I just realized. This, so flip that over, right? It's the word that's over us. You like my PowerPoint uh, skills? Mm, 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 mm. Flip it around. Flip it around. Um, but no, this, this is what we do, right? is we stand over the word and say, I will take the parts that I like. In that case, whose word does it become? It becomes your word. It becomes you saying to, to the expert, no, sorry, I, I know that's what you think, but this is how I do things and this is how I like things. Archbishop Tim Keller says, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. Check this out. It is the precondition for it. An authoritative word is not the enemy of a dynamic relationship with God. It's not, ooh, God, we've, we've got to agree on some things before I go all in with you. Or else this, this is going to be, this is not going to go well. It's no, I come under the authority of God and then say, God, I'm going to assume that you have some things to teach me. 
I'm going to assume that there are some things that I'm getting wrong. I'm going to assume that your way, right, we have a shared outcome, which is my flourishing and the good of my neighbors. That's what I want most, right? My own personal flourishing, my own becoming truly human, and the good of those around me. We, we are lockstep in those purposes. Now, there are some things that you say that feel contrary to those purposes. But if we're truly submitting to a real God and not making God in our own image, we enter into that relationship with the precondition being, and God, I'm going to assume that means that there's going to be times where I'm a little bit outraged by what you've called me to do, where it feels like my will is challenged, right? Jacob, well, I don't know how many times I can say this in how many different ways, but if there, was, if, if there is one predominant prayer that I would have for us as a community is that we would be as in our culture, that, that just deeply embedded in our culture is a humility that says that we are willing to function under the assumption that we are individually and corporately getting some things wrong. And that the more that we truly sit under the authoritative word of God, the more that those things will actually work themselves out in community. And to not be scared of that, to not run from that, not to say, I'm content in my faith as I know it right now. Because many Christians arrive at that point. And every Christian who arrives at that point arrives at it too early. Whether they're 25, 45, or 85, it's always too early to arrive and say, no, my faith, my understanding of God, my practice of faithfulness in the world is a finished product. Because God's word will always challenge. It'll challenge even that posture to start with. And so, oh, that we would be a community that people come in and say, man, there's not that arrogance that they've fully arrived. You just, you, just don't, you just don't sniff that from these people. Like, discipleship course, people are really sitting there going, no, I need to hear something tonight. I'm not sitting here just to evaluate the content or I'm not sitting here thinking of everyone else in this room who needs to hear this. I come saying, insofar as I'm sitting under the word of God, I'm going to assume there's something for me. And that likely is going to mean, in many cases, a challenge to how I'm doing, how I'm thinking, how I'm desiring. Rather than just a pat on the back, right? Praise God that sometimes the word comes into our life and encourages us. Because we need that. We need to be told every now and then, hey, you're doing great in this. Hey, you are doing the right thing. But if that's all God's word becomes, right, we've made God into a cheerleader and not our coach. A cheerleader, right, I remember this. I remember shooting free throws, right? And you can miss a free throw, and the cheerleaders go, hooray, you're doing great. That's fine. We still love you, right? The coach is like, we're going to work on that. We're going to work on that right? Like, we've, we've got to get your free throw percentage up, right? Sometimes we so desperately want God to just go, yay, no matter what, no matter what, you're doing great. He's too invested in you to do that. He's too invested in you to just leave you right where you are. To cheer when actual a little bit of correction is needed. To cheer when some challenge is needed, right? And that not only comes directly through his word, it comes through a community. Because right? one of the primary ways that God's word will land in our lives is through the mouths of our brothers and sisters. Okay, Is, is the word, because some of us get to this point too, if I didn't get it myself from the word, 
then I'm not listening to anybody else. Ooh, that's another posture Christians can get. I know that that's what you think, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to decide that for myself. There's a time and place for that. We should check what we're being told and what we're being taught, and we should have the ability to, to but there's an arrogance that eventually becomes, I'm only willing to change if it comes from me. And we need, we need to trust more the mouths of our brothers and sisters to say, hey, I, I'm not sure you're seeing this right. And say, man, maybe that's one of the ways that God is speaking to me. It's the narrative soil for truth. The third thing here is that it's a mirror for change. What it specifically says is, um, in the scriptures, we receive a mirror by which God convicts us of sin and helps us to change. Love that. This is again from Isaiah 55. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not there, do not return there, but water the earth, bring, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I love this. One of the things that God's word is intended to do is it's intended to accomplish things. That God's word, empowered by the spirit, is one of God's ways of accomplishing things in the world. It's one of the ways that he speeds along his narrative. It's not a dead book. Right? It's a living book. This is one of the craziest things that the scriptures say again and again. That God's word is, is in Hebrews, it says it's living and active. It's active. It's to be active in our life. It's actually God sends his word. God sends sermons into your life to accomplish something. God sends discipleship course sessions into your life to accomplish something. And God says, if it returns to me void, that's not on me because I never send forth a word without intention that it would accomplish something. And so what would it look like if we had that posture? To say every time I encounter the word, whether that's in, in personal study, whether that's here on Sunday, whether that's in D course, I'm going to posture myself to say God's going to try and accomplish something in and through me tonight by whatever's being taught. Do you hear how different that is? Then again, this idea of, well, we'll see. Oh, I didn't get much from the teaching, right? Oh, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I feel like, oh, oh, my goodness, Wednesday at D course? Oh, my goodness, I thought so-and-so should have been there. It would have been so good for me, right? No, no, no. God's word might be intended to accomplish something in them, but it's meant to accomplish something new, right? That God's word is, is, it, it is, it is rain. It is nourishment. It is, there are seeds in the soil of our lives that will not come to life apart from the word acting upon them as rain, as nourishment. That's what Isaiah 55 is saying. Some of us feel a little stale. We feel like if we're soil, that soil's a little dry and broken. And we say, God, send the rain. And God says, oh, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. But the word remains closed in your private life. Your heart remains closed when others are trying to bring the word to you. The rain is out there. Your umbrella is too big. Lay down the umbrella. Let it pour over you and watch the life that comes. If you would just follow, right? Like so often, I was, I was just uh, 
preparing for, for this coming week in D course. And so often the question that we land on is, in response to what you've heard tonight, what's one thing that God is asking you to do? That's a question we can ask every single time we sit under teaching because that is an answerable question by promise of what God has said. It is seeking to accomplish something. It is rain in our lives. It is nourishment to us if we would allow it. I actually want to give you an experience of this. I'm just going to give you three or four minutes to sit under the word of God and to maybe suspend all of your intellectual questions some of you have about, oh, what are we doing here? And to just, just trust for a minute that God might be seeking to speak to you through a simple text that I'm about to put up. And then to trust that he's speaking to you in a way that he's trying to maybe bring something to life. That maybe there is some way in which he wants you to respond. Amy and Steve are just going to play for a little bit while we do this. But I feel like there's no better way to end a teaching on the word of God than to just allow you to experience it, right? God is speaking. It's literally the son who says these words I'm about to put up. And now the spirit is, is, is with you and seeking to apply this, to illuminate it. So let's put that text up. Again, just three or four minutes. I'm going to have you read this. If you want to close your eyes and meditate on it, I would encourage you to read it really slowly. Read it with a questioning heart. God, what are you saying to me through these words? And then I'll close this in prayer in just a couple minutes and we'll transition to communion.